Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 231, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, can team-based staffing work in elementary schools? Stay with us. podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, how teachers can best support students who may not want to go to college. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? I will not complain. It's fall break. It's the beginning of October, and I feel good. Is everyone loving the fall break? And when I say everyone, I mean the educators. Are they well, loving it, you think? Absolutely. All the pictures I'm seeing on social media, our teachers are traveling the country. They're out on cruises. Some are just you know, home relaxing. Some did serve last week mm-hmm. in our intercession, but they're on fall break this week. I think it's going to be um, a lot of positive feedback. I think the teachers are feeling good. The kids are having a good time and I like it. I saw one of our um, teachers at our local elementary school at the grocery store during school hours yesterday. And I was like, there you go. Like she's just chilling at Walmart by herself, yep. you know, it's just nice to not have that same routine and kind of do things a little differently. Um, right. So uh, I think it's a win. All right. Uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about something that I read out of the Phi Delta Kappen article. Um, it, it's out of Arizona, um, and it has to do with the team-based model but in elementary school. And so stick with me here. And I've always kind of wondered this, and you, I'm going to let you set me straight right now. Why in elementary school does each teacher have to do every subject? You know, it's like you have to be an expert in everything to be an elementary school teacher. Well, when you think of elementary school, you need to think of foundational periods. Um, everything is related to each other. Um, and it's just, it's, it's too much to have primary, children transitioning after every subject. Um, You're talking about social development. You're talking about their uh, foundational literacy skills, their basic building um, skills in relation to math. And then there's so many other things that they're not actually learning yet. Um, It keeps them structured. It's settling for a lot of the children. And that's just literally what's required when it comes to um, K-4 or K-6 licensing. Um, I don't think you really start departmentalizing and feeling comfortable, really comfortable with it until about fourth grade. And of course, there are some, you know, some buildings that, that they take it all the way down to second grade. But I think they build to that. They plan for it. And then they, you know, maybe do a pilot and then try to make it work. But right around fourth grade, there's no question that let's, you know, departmentalize and and give teachers an opportunity to hone in on their crafts and their and their strengths. All right. So. A school in Mesa, Arizona, partnering with Arizona State University, ran a pilot program with the school's third grade teachers, and they decided they were going to work 
as a team with all of its students, uh, mm-hmm. rather than having four teachers, each working with 25 students, the team collectively took responsibility for a hundred students. And here are the roles mm-hmm. that they had. They had a lead teacher. Um, mm-hmm. They had three other certified teachers and one student teacher. And the team had four interconnected classrooms with specific purposes. There was like mm-hmm. a gathering space for all 100 students. There was a reading hub, a math hub, a writing hub, an inquiry-based room for science and social studies. Do you like the way this sounds so far? Actually, I do because it sounds like a lot of planning and preparation um, was put in place in order for this to be effectively implemented. And that's, you know, a really important key in anything you're planning in education. And one of the things that teachers often complain about when you survey them is not having enough time to plan and collaborate. Right. And as well as like, I think all of us are naturally probably good at some subjects and other subjects we may have to work Correct. a little harder at. And so this maybe mm-hmm. will allow you to kind of focus on your natural expertise, if that's a thing. That's correct. And and, um, and then you mentioned, at, as I asked the question, I was like, why don't we see more of this? You were talking about the transition. I think the idea of having that large space, but still kind of subdivided, mm-hmm. I think that kind of answers that awkwardness of getting third graders from one room to the next. Well, one thing they're not mentioning is also funding. Right. Um, you have right. to look at schools and, and what the options are that they have to choose from in order to do things like that. And let me give you an example. Um, this was probably 20 years ago. I had an opportunity to go with a team um, from the school district I was serving at that time. And we visited, visited the uh, Orange County School District in Florida. And when I tell you our minds were blown at several of the schools we visited 20 years ago, they had what's called the the sliding walls um, for interconnectedness and the common areas in the middle. Mm-hmm. They were collaborating. They were doing cross-curricular lessons. And it was so innovative and it was so awesome. And all we kept thinking was we needed entirely new buildings in order to even begin collaborating to do such a thing. Right. Well, you can't take all the fun out of it. So we're going to pretend that funding is not an issue. We know it is everywhere. No. So, But, but, but what you have to do is actually plan for it. Like literally look at your budget and see what you can do in one or two of your buildings or maybe just one or two of your classrooms and make them model classrooms. How about that? Yeah, exactly. And so what they did at this particular school, the lead teacher would be a veteran educator that that also Uh received a little extra stipend. Um, They continue to teach, but they're also responsible for calling on the expertise of the other team members. It says adjusting the schedule and coaching colleagues. And there's a daily planning block and two hours during the school's weekly early dismissal time, which the principal protected it from interruption. So that was, I just have to stop you right there. If I could give every teacher in my school district right now, Mm -hmm. two hours to plan, they would absolutely love me. I would be interested to see how they build that in um, where they're, you know, taking minutes from, or did you, did I hear you say early, early dismissal? dismissal time? So it sounds like this district was still doing early dismissal once, maybe, maybe we once can, a week. Yeah. Maybe that had to do uh, with COVID, but it makes you, yeah. you raise a good point though. Like, should we not be doing early dismissal once a week? Is the benefits <laughs> of early dismissal that a teacher has time to prepare more beneficial than having the kids kids in school that extra amount of time. See what I'm saying? Well, that was the point of my bringing up my experience from about 20 years ago. If that was innovative then, 
and we're talking about it being innovative now, we certainly are in a better position now with funding, with uh, collaboration being at the forefront, and with giving teachers the right resources to be able to to plan in such a way. So I I'm, I just think this is amazing. I'm sure that they have high, you know, great morale in that school district. I suspect student achievement is greatly impacted because it's a type of learning environment where a lot of children will thrive. And when you give teachers that two hours, because think about it, they, that's one of the things they talk about all the time is that we work seven days a week. We work in the summer when you think we're doing nothing. We're always planning. We're always mm-hmm. grading papers. And we're always thinking about the next thing um, for our students. And if we give them that two hours to work together and then they extend that on, you know, on their own time. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow, they're really prepared. They're really fired up, which means that the energy they bring to their lessons, that really impacts young people. Two other benefits. They said a flexible schedule. Team members could modify the day to meet students' needs and adjust if a team member was absent, which I really like. Because yes. rather than dropping in that sub who's like out of place, doesn't know what's going on, mm-hmm. the learning continues even when someone calls in sick or has a doctor's appointment or something like that. Well, definitely, because they've collaborated and planned that lesson to a T together that any of them could pick up, you know, where the other left off. Right. And then lastly, you're supporting the novice teachers, teacher candidates, first year teachers, mm-hmm. student teachers. Um, they were could easily be integrated into the process and actually learn from, from those colleagues. So it says that the school expanded this model to other grade levels after testing it in the third grade. And the teams were supplemented mm-hmm. by special teachers, music, art, physical education, yes, um, a reading interventionalists, you know, community educators and so forth. But it says that uh, they love the results. I mean, the a survey of teachers implementing this model at the elementary school showed deep appreciation appreciation for the flexibility. Um, they also the possibilities for project-based learning and other innovations. And Love it. It says teachers were happier and more motivated. Um, so interesting. Just you know what else that impacts? Example. Teacher retention. Right. Exactly. I mean, if you go to school or go to work uh, every day and you like the fact that you're, you know, focused on math, which you love rather than you're not interested to, in going anywhere else. Yep, exactly. That so, strengthens your community too. I will share the full article in our show notes. I'll share it with you as well, just so you can kind of take a look at it. I and, love this. Um, yes. And we'll see uh, how things play out. We may see more of this kind of pop up. I, I'm not going to say that this hasn't happened. I'm sure other schools have experimented with this. You know, you probably even heard of. Yeah, of but sharing your results, that's critical for those who are dreaming or thinking of doing such a thing, or even those who have implemented and maybe it's not going as well. This gives them hope to make some adjustments and make it work. Yep, no doubt. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Let's go. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is going to give us some tips on how teachers can best support students who choose an alternative post-high school path. Stephanie Haynes is a licensed education coach and consultant who works specifically with school administrators, teachers, and parents of students to reimagine the culture of success in schools. And she's also the author of a book titled, College is Not Mandatory. Stephanie, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. I'm really excited to be here. It, it, this is an important conversation to me because mm-hmm. it's something that I've kind of always felt strongly about. Um, and I want to first kind of get your your take. I know you work with schools and you have your your fingers on the pulse of K through 12 educators. How do you think they feel when they hear the idea that college is not mandatory or college is not for everyone? Because I mean, at the end of the day, these are this is a group of people who believes in education, probably to you know get the best education possible. But this is almost kind of a, a counterintuitive type line of saying college is not mandatory. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that to be clear, I work mostly with secondary schools. So mm-hmm. I don't have the pulse quite on elementary school, which is a whole different breed. But what I do know is teachers always want the best for their students. They want their students to thrive. They want their students to be happy and successful. Often that leads to college, but it's not always the case. But I do know that there are teachers who are feeling lost. If these kids aren't doing well in school, how do they help them find that success if college is just not part of the picture for them or something they're not even interested in? So it is a battle for a lot of teachers to kind of say, okay, I know that I'm educating you so that you get a good base foundational education that's supposed to help you when you go to college because that's been the dynamic for the last two decades. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing an increasing number of students for which college is not the right fit for them. And so far, the resources haven't quite caught up to that demand in terms of educating our teachers into how can we really best support those students to feel like they can be successful without going to college. Yeah. And that's specifically, I want to give all our listeners a heads up. That's really what this interview is about is like, how do we educate the educators on like how to navigate this This isn't necessarily like making the case for like college isn't for everybody. It's more of like, how do we have that discussion? And as I was reading um, some of your book, I I was nodding at this one part when you were talking about how you graduated high school in 1987. Um, You said most of your classmates did not plan on attending a four year college. And there was really no pressure to go at that time. I didn't realize that that was kind of the tone in the eighties. I graduated Mm -hmm. um, about 10 years later in like 1998. And Mm -hmm. I felt like, there was a lot of pressure to go to college. I felt like it was the thing to do and I would have FOMO if I didn't go. Um, And so, and I guess then you go on to say like it it got even more so more pressure to go to college after I graduated, right? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. In fact, it started, so I started my teaching career in 1992. And at that point, to be fair, there were no standards, no state standards, no national standards, no end of course exams. None of that stuff even existed at that point. And each school was kind of left to their own devices to develop the curriculum and the pathway for students to go through their school. But about two, three years in, we started getting conversation pieces from the local universities. And this was in California at the time saying, hey, listen, your kids are coming, but they're not prepared. Your kids are coming, but they don't have the the basics we need them to have. Your kids are coming, but they really aren't at the level we need them to be at. You need to change so that your kids are coming prepared. Well, that transition, that conversation changed the dynamic of education. It changed everything. It started the whole conversation about do we need to have regulated curriculum across the nation? Because if you're going from one state to another, to a college, don't all kids have to have some kind of base skills? And so... That was part of what I, my teaching was about at that point was I had to change everything we were doing. Not that what we were doing was horrible, but now we were trying to address what the colleges wanted. That's when you started seeing the rise of AP and honors courses and dual enrollment and baccalaureate and all of these things started coming out about that point. Not that they didn't really exist before, but they became more and more popular. At the same time, our culture was saying, well, listen, you have to go to college. College is the great equalizer. College makes sure everybody can have a level playing field with being able to earn an income that's a livable wage. And while that may have been true at that point, it is not sustaining itself to be that true. And along the way, we've seen thousands upon thousands of people who went, who couldn't afford it, who now have loans and are dying in debt and don't even have the careers that they went to school for because there's not a lot of education about why college was so important to them. And so that's the whole demographic that I that I grew up with, right? Was or that I started my teaching career was it was not college and then it was college and we had to prepare. So teachers since then have been trained to help kids get through the curriculum to be ready to go to college, 
we have all kinds of discussions in class. This is what you need for college. You need to learn, you know, AP format, MLA format. You need to make sure you have all this information. The higher level grades you have, the higher level courses you have, the better chances you have to get into college. It's all about college, right? So there's not a lot of talk about the opposite or the other options available to students, which is why I thought it would be such a good idea to start talking about it. Because so many kids are feeling that if college isn't their option, they're going to be losers. If college isn't their option, they're not going to be successful, which is not true. Yeah, there's a lot to digest there. I, I think as I sit on the sidelines and I kind of watch, you know, kids and uh, go in college and maybe not work out for them and then they, or they just skip it all together. I see mm-hmm. a lot of kids become linemen, electricians, plumbers, and they, mm-hmm. they do really well. Like they, they seem to make mm-hmm. a lot of money with those jobs. Um, and, and you said that there was kind of this, this tone of college is the great equalizer. Is there data to like back up kind of what I see? Like, is there anything that says like, Hey, if you go to college, you're not necessarily making a lot of money. Is, is that done in a broad scale at all? You know, there is some broader research and it usually comes down to the career paths and the particular kind of college you choose. So I live out in the South and South Carolina. So let's say you choose to go to Clemson and you don't have a lot of money to pay for it. You're taking out a bunch of loans, but you want to be a teacher. That is not going to pay back those loans effectively. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Because a, a Clemson education is exorbitant, right. rightfully so in its own in its own way, right? But if you're going there to be a teacher, chances are you're not going to be able to pay that those loans off quite as easily as if you were going there to maybe earn an MBA and work in a corporate world, which might give you a better salary right off the bat, right? So it's it's that dynamic that I think we're starting to see in a broader scale. Certain careers are doing really well with a college degree. Mm-hmm. Others, you have to be very careful what kind of college, what kind of debt you go into because the income is not matching what colleges are charging and what your interest might be once you graduate. And then still others are no longer requiring a college degree or never required a college degree to begin with. And so the discussion, I think, needs to shift from what college are you going to to what career field do you want to enter into and then backtrack what kind of education, training and experience will you need to enter into that particular career or that career field? And if whatever that might lead to, what kinds of colleges, if you need to have that, will be within the price range that you need to graduate with as little debt as possible if that's something you're going to have to take on. Right. And you, and you kind of break down these, what you call them, five major options in your book. And I guess mm-hmm. I'll list them for, for our listeners. It's community colleges, trade schools, apprenticeship programs. Uh, you have the military, gap seasons, and four-year colleges. Now, gap mm-hmm. seasons, you mean basically like a gap year, like just taking off a year? See, that's why I use the term no um, seasons because a gap year is a misnomer. There okay. are gap season programs that students can do in a semester, in a summer, um, in 10 to three, you know, three to 10 weeks, depending on what they choose. It all comes down to the kinds of experiences that they're trying to gain by taking that gap opportunity. And that can be done even something like a study abroad program in a college is considered a gap season, if you will. Okay. And so those are all things that you can do. And those are generally paired with another kind of training. So you, let's say if you want to work in conservation, um, you might go do a gap season working in the national park system um, on one of their uh, programs, or you might go and work with a conservation company as part of just doing an internship or some kind of program that they might offer to learn more. And then you've got some experience when you go to college, if that's where you need to go, you know exactly what kinds of classes and programs to involve yourself in 
because it's going to get you the pathway you want to go to. Does really, that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I really like that idea. I have not really heard of it explained that way. It almost makes me want to go back in time and do that. Um, right? You know, and and I, what I really like about, let's stay on gap seasons for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't mature enough to go to college. Does that make sense? Do I sound s- silly for saying no. that? No. You are so right. In fact, the number of the, the dropout rate for college freshmen is 60%. And most of it comes down to they just weren't ready to be there. It does not mean they're not intelligent enough. It just means they weren't well prepared enough to be organized and living on their own and be responsible. And so when you're looking at that, doesn't it make financial sense to say, huh, maybe we should make sure Johnny and Jill are really ready to go to college before we send them off, have them take out loans or pay for it. Uh, and just to make sure, and so that's where I think a gap season or a gap program can really kind of help ease that transition. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Like I felt like right. uh, I felt like I was just kind of getting thrusted into this thing I was supposed to do, mm-hmm. and I was paying for it. And I, I guess mm-hmm. I was taking some core classes and stuff, so I was kind of chipping away. But at the same time, like I didn't understand the impact of how that would lead me down further paths. Like I just wasn't mature in that sense. I felt like I could live on my mm-hmm. own if I had to. But I don't. I just couldn't make a decision of like, all right, these are life's decisions that I'm making while I'm in college. I don't know. Right, and the, that whole career exploration—you know, going to college to try and figure it out—is a really expensive lesson. Wouldn't right. it make more sense if we took the time in high school to help kids do that exploration and find a purpose that they really wanted to pursue, and then from there deciding, oh yes, I want to go to college, and oh by the way, the college that has the best program for this particular option that I'm looking at is, you know, in my state and it's the local, you know, four-year college, or I don't even need a degree. I need to go get an associate and a certification to step into what I'm doing. But doesn't that make much more sense to help our kids recognize, oh, let's talk about career rather than college only, mm-hmm. because that's where we all end up in the anyway. All right. So the main reason we're here is we want to give our listeners, educators, some tips as adults mm-hmm. or just people in children's lives, how they can help. So mm-hmm. what are some takeaways that they can have to, to help navigate these conversations with students? Yeah. First and foremost, stop saying that everything needs to be done so you can get, do well in college. Right? That's the easiest thing to do is it's not about doing well in your course, whether it's English, science, math, or whatever, to be able to go to college. The second, and I'm an English teacher let's, by nature or by training, so let's be clear, I understand the, the dynamics of English teachers, but when we're giving our curriculum, we don't talk about the professional skills that we're helping kids develop. That's an easy fix. So when I assign an essay and I help kids break that down, what I'm doing is helping them prioritize. What I'm doing is helping them organize. Those are all professional skills that future employers are looking for. But those also can help students understand, well, listen, I know I can prioritize, but I don't really like prioritizing about writing, but I really love prioritizing figuring out how to do math. Okay, so let's talk about what careers might work in that. So while I'm in my English class or I'm in my math class or I'm in my science class or I'm in my history class, we can incorporate discussions about careers, even just based on the literature or the work that we're doing. What, what, what careers do the people we're reading in the books actually have? Do they still exist today? What would they be like? Uh, when I'm in, in U.S. history class, what kinds of careers were operating then? Do they still exist? What would that look like? Would you be interested in those? These don't take away from our curriculum. In fact, they can enhance the relevance of our curriculum, which is what today's students really, really want. They want to feel that what they're learning is going to be applicable in some other way in their life. We don't need to change the curriculum to make that true. We just need to change the language around our curriculum to make that true. 
And so that's what I think we can do. So some very practical things. The third thing is invite your CTE teachers into your classrooms to give a brief presentation. Talk about what it's like in their programs, what kinds of careers they can have. Or if you don't want to have them in, then invite you know them to create a one sheet for you of information that you can share with students. Schools can do this. They can highlight all of the ways that they're trying to prepare students for careers within their school. We have a local school here that has um, a center for advanced studies. And those have, I think there's 15 total career tracks that students can choose from. So can we talk about that? Can we promote that and make that an essential part of a student's high school experience, not just the college preparation? Because here's the thing. If you're learning all of this information, it's going to help you decide what major to have in college or what majors not to have in college. If you're doing well because you're really interested in the classes you're taking, your GPA is going to rise. Therefore, you're going to be able to do well when you're applying to colleges. So it's not a taking away from anything. It's actually an addition and helping kids have a much more rounded portfolio when they are deciding to go to a four-year college. When I was in school, and I want to say even when my oldest child was still in, in high school, um, I still I felt like there was a, a social stigma around not mm-hmm. going to college. I feel mm-hmm. like that might be getting better. I mean, kind of what are your thoughts on that? Are we is everybody kind of getting on the same page that not everyone has to go and and maybe not I don't say look down on kids that don't go, but do you see that happen? I do. I'm seeing it happen more and more, and I'm very encouraged by it. To be true, there are still stigmas around all of the other options. And there is a lot of pressure that students have to face when they say to their peers, I'm not going to go to college. I'm going to go to A, B, or C. Mm -hmm. The thing that I've noticed, though, is those students who actually have a plan for what they're going to do, why they're going to do it, that changes everything. So a student says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm not going to college. I don't even know. People kind of feel like, well, why won't you just go to college and figure it out? But when a student says, you know what, college is not for me, but I have found this amazing trade school that's going to give me all of the experience, credentials, and training I need to enter into this industry. And I'm really excited about that because that's something I love doing. Nobody has a problem with that. So as educators, we can help kids do this. We can help them create that plan and we can support their explorations and their dreams about it. So when a kid tells us, I don't want to go to college, but I don't know what to do, say, all right, what do you, what do you not like doing? You know, what, what could you do? If you didn't go to college, what would you like to do with your days? How would you like to earn money? You're asking some of those open-ended questions when a student's asking for guidance and help. And the same for parents. We have a really huge influence on our kids to help them to navigate this. What do I don't want to do? What do I do want to do? And how do I make sense of it all? And that's why I wrote that book specifically for parents, because it gives them the background information. It's written from an educator's standpoint. So educators get it when they read it, like, oh, yeah, this makes total sense. But parents who don't have that background, they're looking at this going, oh, I had no idea. And they then can help their student. How do you navigate kids around the whole FOMO idea, though, of, you know, not going to the university? Right. And then that's where it really gets interesting. Because when you really dive down into a student, and I do this with my private clients, and then I do this with courses, too, is when you really dial down to what's most important to them, what their values are, what their passions or aptitudes are, and help them see what that really is, and look at the 16 career clusters, which many of them have never seen in their life before, and examine the different pathways that are available to them, doors open up to where they go, oh, I had no idea any of this even existed. I had no idea I could do all of these things. Then you start generating an excitement for students where they just 
start thinking about what they really want, which up until now, they generally haven't been. There's really been no need to. It's kind of been a lockstep. You go to middle school, you go to high school, you go to college, then you figure it out. Mm-hmm. We're trying to change that language, right? Of, of helping them see that there can be something very different for them that's better for them, even if it's different from all of their peers. When they find that thing and they go, oh, this is what I want to do, then it doesn't matter whether they go to college or not. That FOMO is gone. The kids that still really want to go to college and say, well, I really want to go because I think it'll be so fun. Well, that's a values discussion for the parents and the student to have. You know, do you want to invest all of this money to go and have fun and figure it out, even though the career you want may not need this degree, or it might be outdated by the time you graduate? Mm-hmm. Is that really where you want to spend your time? And that's a private discussion for the for the family to decide. No doubt. Well, it's all an important discussion, and I appreciate you sharing your expertise on it. Um, you know, it's it's something that I think most of us agree with, um, but it's also sometimes hard to articulate um, to students. So that's why it's so important to kind of have those tips for teachers and to help them navigate that with all the students that they come face to face with on a daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. Again, if anybody wants to um, look up the book, it's College is Not Mandatory. Where can they find the book? Oh, they can find it on Amazon. They can find it on Barnes and Noble. And if they want information about it, they can find it on my website too. Before they before they order, if they want to really read about it, you can find it on my website, stephaniehaines.net. Great. And that's Haynes with a Y, right? Yes. All yes. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, Stephanie, uh, you've been an excellent guest so far. Are you ready for our pop quiz? We'll see. Let's go. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? career exploration. That's true. That's a good one. What what are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Oh, awareness of potential careers that are out in the world that they could actually get into. What does every child deserve? Oh, every child deserves the freedom to choose what makes them the most happy. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Oh, the biggest challenge I think for today's educators is learning how to be the present teacher they really want to be and be the present human being outside of the classroom that they need to be to balance both. Mm, Yes. That's everybody. I think, um, Mm -hmm. what's the best gift to give an educator? Oh man. Um, volunteer in their classroom and give them the period off. Which teacher changed your life? Oh, my second grade teacher, Mrs. Brennan. She, um, She taught me to make peanut butter, which is insane, but we learned how to make peanut butter, which I loved. And I was not a very good reader. And so she challenged me to read a hundred books in my second grade year. Um, And I did. And when I did, she presented me with this amazing book, which I had loved. Um, And it was that teacher that made, that gave me the idea that I wanted to be a teacher and it's never changed. That's really cool. Um, Mm. Do you still make peanut butter today? I do. Actually, I love it. Just throw a bunch of stuff in the blender and it's all good. So I enjoy it. (laughs) Um, Which book did you read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? There are so many. Goodness gracious. Uh, You know what? I'm going to say The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Teens because I think because my world revolves around teens, that just gives me such a great insight into how to speak with them and how to guide them. Okay. I didn't even know they made a teen version of Highly Effective Habits. That's great. I'll have to check that one out. All right. Again, uh, you're listening to Stephanie Haynes. Thank you so much for joining us on Class Dismissed today. Thank you so much for having me. That 
That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>